So we're taking our time um, exploring the factors and the elements that um, contribute to uh, creating, shaping, forging a vessel that's um, adequate for the material uh, and and the fire of Eros and the transformations there and the explorations there and also uh, what it means to, you know, so to speak, master the fire in relation to this this kind of work with Eros and the imaginal. And we talked about uh, preliminaries and we talked about um, uh, ethics and we talked about uh, skill and confidence with emotion, uh, emotions and energetics and uh, the capacity to trust a little bit or just play with a little bit of trust, and we talked about equanimity and some other things. So let's let's pick that up and and continue the list. So we also talk about samadhi, um, and people think of that as something that brings steadiness. But oftentimes, you know, and I've said this before, you know, on other retreats, it's like sometimes this word samadhi gets such a um, gets short-changed, it gets, it gets contracted and shrunk to quite a narrow meaning, meaning just how steady is my focus. And even when pe- people teach the jhanas, they, they imagine that um, it's really uh, a, a question of getting more and more concentrated and focused and kind of rock-like in one's concentration, as if that's the most important thing there. And that's just one strand of what's involved, um, this kind of immovability of mind, the um, attention being less pulled by things, by distractions, and then hoping that that will kind of just generally be good for me or make me more equanimous. Um, that kind of immovability of mind does um, happen sometimes, or relative immovability to different extents, but it's it's a it's a meditative thing primarily. When the quote, concentration or focus or steadiness of mind is strong. But, you know, uh, and you've heard me say before, I would um, define samadhi as much more than a kind of steadiness of focus of the mind. It really involves a, a juiciness, a depth, a, a, a real sense of well-being, um, permeating the energy body primarily and, and, and the mind and the kind of... Um, uh, filling out of of the mind in that juiciness, in that well-being, in that loveliness, to whatever degree, and um, that encompasses all the jhanas, etc. I'm speaking loosely now, um, uh, but but that's really how I would define um, samadhi, and um, it's also samadhi is a state of less fabrication. Again, to what degree you can go through the eight jhanas, and they're all um, you know progressively. Uh, less fabrication of perception. That's a way of thinking about what's going on in the jhana. So there's a connection here. The equanimity, samadhi, um, has to do with less fabrication. But if we think samadhi, if we acknowledge, you know, samadhi is important in all this, um, but I would say primarily, not just because of the steadiness of focus, that it brings, um, or that's part of samadhi, but because of the well-being. So what happens, um, again, over time, 
um, talking about months and even years, um, when we develop our samadhi, meaning developing this sense of well-being, this pool of nourishment and well-being and joy and um, loveliness um, in the energy body, in in the mind, pervading the being with that. And we develop this over time, um, you know, to whatever degree, to uh, you know, dipping in and out frequently or a lot, um, that dipping in and out to that um, brings uh, equanimity in general in our life and balance, and again, balance with, with respect to Eros and more general, generally. Um, why? Because we grow in happiness. We actually uh, feel ourselves... Um, that we have access to to uh, a deep happiness um, and nourishment, a deep nourishment. We feel more and more as we develop that kind of samadhi, the well-being there, that we have enough, that we are nourished enough. We have enough to drink of this of this water uh, that we that we so need, um, at least at one dimension. Uh, something I'll come back to, but um, but that sense of of uh, happiness that's available to us and nourishment that's available to us it means that over time as we get more secure in that we we feel like we don't need to and we can actually see we don't need to rely on the sense pleasures um, to kind of give us nourishment or, or it, it, it's such a poor level of nourishment of trying to get nourished and happy somehow from sense pleasures or from um, boosts of the ego because someone says something nice to me about my appearance or about something I've done or, or this or that um, or just you know someone tells me I'm okay or communicates to me in some way or another I'm okay you know this can all be important um, to a certain degree but it's such a it's such a relatively speaking it's such a poor basis uh, such a poor security it gives um, to try and uh, you know, get or secure a sense of well-being, of happiness, of deep okayness through those through those mechanisms. Um, but when we have the, the samadhi available to us over time, dipping in and out, then we we just become uh, less dependent um, on these kind of sense pleasures or ego boosts or being told we're okay. And because we're less dependent, we're less pulled by them, towards them, or, or whatever, or recoiling away from things, or collapsing, and we're less thrown off balance. So you can see how the samadhi has more to do with that kind of balance, giving us that kind of capacity of balance, uh, rather than just this kind of immovable balance of a focused mind that is not pulled one way or another away from its object, the nostrils, or whatever it is. Why am I mentioning this? Why why is understanding this important? Um, and in general, um, uh, I I would say you know because in general I I would say that understanding why and how um, the elements and the factors of the path work uh, this is important. I understand. So s- samadhi is good for me. It's good. It's important to know why and how samadhi is good for, for this business of equanimity. If I have the wrong understanding, it has all kinds of... that I think it's just about you know, being able to fix my mind on the tip of my nose or whatever it is, um, and that's somehow going to help me be equanimous or generally help my 
life somehow. Um, it's important to understand how and why um, elements or factors of the path are working. Why? Because, as I think I mentioned in an earlier talk on this course, understanding, our understanding of these kind of things informs our decisions in practice. So if I understand that it's more about well-being than about nailing my attention to the tip of my nose or whatever, or the soles of my feet or whatever it is, um, not that that doesn't have a place, and I'll come back to that, but um, um, if I understand more, that actually that understanding itself gives me some wisdom in terms of um, making decisions at any moment in practice about where to lean, how to navigate, how to incline the mind, what to develop, what to let go of, etc. Yeah? You know, if I have an idea of practice is kind of um, trying to be kind and just accept whatever arises and let things come and let things go as much as I'm able. And that's my idea of sort of Dharma practice or insight meditation. Or if my idea is, you know, really now I just, I'm trying to not be distracted and I'm sort of judging myself about, you know, how much I was with the breath or how much thought was there. You know, these, these kinds of ideas, they're, they're so prevalent. And, you know, some sound a lot more attractive than others, the kind accepting, let everything come as much as go, go and go as much as possible. They sound, you know, kind of open-minded and soft and, and whatever, but the ideas we have about practice, the concepts, and sometimes we don't even fully realize what we're holding as a concept. I can come back to this as well. Um, but they are operative in the consciousness, and they have a huge influence obviously, on what I do in practice, what I choose, where I lean, what my intention is, um, what gets developed and what doesn't. But also on how I regard, they have a huge influence on how I regard what arises. How I regard this thought or this image that arises or this energy that arises or this emotion that arises. It's just okay, just kind of open to it, let it come, let it go. Or don't, you know, kind of don't give in to it, be with the breath, whatever. Or, or, or any other idea. The ideas I have, the understanding I have of what practice is, what I'm trying to do, how it works. Um, this has a huge influence. And, you know, sometimes it's like it's the less popular part of Dharma talks. People like the stories and the kind of uh, quotes and things like that. But there's something about understanding the structuring of practice and how it fits together that will hold you in, serve you better in, in the long run, so to speak, um, than this or that story or, or this or that quote or, or whatever. Um, how I regard what arises determines what unfolds, the experience that unfolds, as we've been saying. So let's so the samadhi, equanimity, ethics, skill with emotions and energies, this trust, we've talked about all this. Um, we can also develop kind of balance and strength um, <clears throat> in our lives in general um, by certain uh, certain other meditations, for example, um, meditating on the hara, on the, on the, the, the energy center in the sort of um, tantian or the, the lower belly, um, and um, excuse me, with that, excuse me, um, with that, the connection of that point 
um, with the earth and the, and the sense of rootedness and the connection at that point with the whole body and meditating on that sense and just stationing the awareness, almost like the center of the awareness at that point. This, this can be, for some people, a really you know, useful meditation as a way of just changing the sort of inclination of mind to not be that, of consciousness to not be that rooted and, um, and the inclination of, of mind towards more strength, solidity, um, balance, the, root, the balance of rootedness, etc. But notice also implicit in that is also, uh, so it's not just about being at one point, which, you know, being conscious of the sensations at one point, which sometimes can be useful, but sometimes implicit or really helpful to be woven into those kind of meditations is also images of earth connection images of the earth. So there's already an imaginal element, standing meditation, walking meditation, sitting meditation, feeling um, or imagining that rootedness and feeling that in the energy body and feeling the earth, imagining the earth really, imagining and feeling the earth as uh, some um, imaginal figure, if you, if you like, an imaginal figure, meaning the earth is alive as image. What is the image of Earth? I don't mean that it's necessarily personified as a, you know, a human or something like that. But the image of the Earth as something that supports, that connects, that roots, that gives solidity, that gives blessing. And think of the Buddha um, on the evening of his enlightenment, with with uh, it's famous from statues touching the Earth. Uh, you know, the Earth was in his gesture there an imaginal uh, Earth. Even just a, a little bit, there was the the I I uh, the earth is alive for him as image. In that in that gesture in that moment. Um, so it, 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 the imagine the imaginal uh, and energetic and feeling connection, weaving these all together as there are uh, you know as we're saying so much that's part of imaginal practice, but dwelling in those kind of practices can for some people. Um, be really important to to dip in and out of that kind of thing and and hang out in there. And other people have done plenty of that, and that's not doing more of that is not what needs to develop. Yeah, but times um, for many people of dwelling in that in 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 that sort of um, energetic and image and feeling and 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 the fullness of that image, the beauty of that image gives ballast, gives root, can give. Sometimes it's complex. Um. And on, so to speak, on the other hand, so to speak, uh, to tie in with something we said before, you know, those states of deep equanimity, relatively deep equanimity, can also be very not solid. So the feeling with them is of real insubstantiality of things. That's partly where the equanimity comes from. There's a, not so much ethereality, but yeah, insubstantiality. It's almost like you can just see through things. Everything becomes very, very light. But the practice of hanging out in those states, um, really of, of, for instance, um, a very spacious allowing, letting everything come and go, and just really developing that deeper and deeper. Uh, practices of just this really wide consciousness, just receiving and allowing everything come, everything go, resting in awareness. You know, people give different names to that kind of uh, practice, that orientation in practice. That is a state of deep equanimity, of relative unfabrication. 
but it emphasizes the spacious quality, the spaciousness of equanimity, which is important, as we mentioned before. It's not solid. So yes, solidity sometimes gives balance and equanimity, and sometimes the exact opposite um, is part or an element in, in our experience of equanimity that gives, gives us balance. But dwelling um, in, in those kind of uh, states of spacious insubstantiality, letting everything come, letting it go, letting things fade, um, really, really helpful in the long run um, uh, can be. Uh, but, but I'm talking about, again, hours, you know, not just this one experience or here and there or just dipping in for a couple of minutes. I'm talking about like really developing the ability to hang out there for, for a long time, have it be accessible. So there's the imaginal connection with the earth and, and the, you know, the rootedness and the belly center and all that and the solidity there. Um, there's these much more spacious states of allowing an insubstantiality, lack of solidity, but giving a kind of balance and equanimity. And There's also uh, a third here in this little list um, about strength and balance. Um, there's also uh, the images of strength that are available to us. So imaginal figures and images of strength, maybe may solidity, but images of strength. Now sometimes what happens is a person's imaginal practice is alive in certain directions, uh, or certain kinds of images, um, but not so much in others. So, for example, someone might have a lot of images of devotion and uh, very, very beautiful and sort of surrender um, and not notice um, that uh, or ignore or discard or not choose to dwell in other images that arise for them that are more images of strength. So they have an inclination or a tendency or a habit or a pattern um, or an okayness to kind of, uh, or a captivation even, with images of surrender and softness. But images of strength, whatever they might be, and they can be many kinds, um, they tend to ignore, discard, n- not even notice sometimes, um, and, and, or choose not to dwell in. So sometimes um, uh, a teacher can can be helpful. You know, this might come up in an interview. Someone might mention something and then just completely ignore it. And it's exactly what they need to pay attention to. So a teacher or therapist or someone can sometimes point that out in in working with someone and um, might be helpful. And and one could even, in some instances, I guess, prescribe... um, uh, this or that kind of image um, for a person to develop more strength. Um, I'm cautious about that. Um, not saying it's not, uh, you know, helpful sometimes or possible sometimes, but I, I would be a little cautious about it because, partly because it it also kind of implies that the teacher therapist know, knows best, but also for other reasons. Um, also, you know, sometimes uh, as well, if we talk about strength, um, sometimes there's a kind of general weakness of, of the being. Uh, it seems like there's just a sort of this tendency to collapse or kind of everything gets a little mushy and soggy and can't kind of sustain or present. And you kind of feel it in a person's being. Sometimes it's just a general sort of weakness. And sometimes... Um, uh, there's a kind of general suppression of, of libido, of life, life force. Um, but 
but but but here, you know, if that's the case, again, we have to be careful because what is just natural to a person, and and they shouldn't be. Uh, told or forced to be different than they are. It's just natural for them to have that much libido or this much libido, whatever it is, a little, a lot, you know, um, rather than kind of pathologize them as, as being repressed or being over, you know, um, overcharged or over-erotic or over-excitable or whatever. But um, uh, when there's uh, this kind of general weakness or a general um, kind of libidinal suppression, if that's what's happening, it may be, of course, that a kind of inquiry and working in psychotherapy and maybe, and we'll, we'll talk about this, looking at the past and what what may have contributed to that, um, may be helpful. But again, whether it helps or not will also depend on the conceptual framework operating in in the uh, psychotherapy. And all psychotherapies and all teachings have a conceptual framework, and so if the conceptual framework is, um, uh, again, got a certain image of what uh, it, one should be like, or what one's moving towards, or a concept of what's right and what's wrong, and what's okay and what's not, uh, you know, that, that will determine a lot what, what actually gets uh, released. But it may be that some work in psychotherapy actually helps with that. It also might be, I mean, sometimes that um, kind of, if there's this seems to be a kind of general libidinal suppression, then it might be that finding um, uh, where the libido flows easiest in that person's life and uh, expresses the easiest. Um, Finding that and encouraging and supporting that may then just... you know, allow the libido to flow, and then it can begin maybe um, to 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 move towards a kind of general strengthening and vitality, and perhaps opening the range of the libidinal expression, opening it wider than just that one area where it sort of trickled a little bit in in the first place. But it's complex. It's co- all that's complex. <clears throat> so. We should point out that um, when we talk about balance um, in practice or in life, but especially with regard to eros, where this is really important. We're rarely talking about something that's static. We're not talking about a static state of balance. We're talking about something that's dynamic, fluid, responsive. Think more of a um, dancer or a footballer um, dribbling the ball this way or that, or or whatever, running, um, or a cyclist, even just riding your bike, you're actually in a state of dynamic, responsive balance to the little micro-movements this way and that. Um, So these equanimity-giving qualities that we've been talking about, samatha, spacious uh, awareness, equanimity itself, um, metta even, which we didn't mention, and these equanimity-giving qualities, it's not necessary for them to be there all the time, uh, to be there kind of as a constant, mixed in with or in the background to our passion uh, um, or our eros or... Uh, our energetic or psychic charge. So, so careful with this. It's it's rather that we can learn to access these qualities, to, you know, to different depths. And eventually, I would say, we can learn to access them at will. This is what you learn if you practice the jhanas or these deep, deeper states. 
not 100% of the time, but, but generally speaking, um, it's possible to just choose to enter certain states. We can access them, um, these qualities, rest in them and, and kind of marinate in them, marinate in that deep well-being of stillness. Just sit there like you leave a, you know, a slab of tofu to marinate in tamari and garlic and ginger or whatever it is. You just marinate, it soaks it up, it soaks up into the being. Um, and marinate in them, in them at, at times at times, and then that gives, um, slowly, it gives, gradually, it gives a, a confidence um, in that, that that is developable, that access and those qualities are developable, and we trust, we gradually, eventually reach a point of trust that they will be accessible. If they're not accessible in this moment, or if I'm doing some, emphasizing something else in this moment, in the not very distant future, this quality of deep equanimity, or this deep dark space of non-fabrication, relative non-fabrication, or this lovely nourishment of samadhi, or whatever it is, um, it will be available to me in the not distant future, if I want. Or we just get a kind of trust and a confidence, because it, it will be there frequently enough. It's there. It's, it, it'll be there frequently enough in my life that I'll have that nourishment, that stillness, that, uh, that sense of equanimity, all that. So it's this frequency of access to these um, qualities and these states and the trust, uh, it's the frequency of access and trust that supports the equ- our equanimity in life and, and with regard to eros. So what this means is... Um, uh, you know, we're not, as I said, fixed in some kind of um, medium, medium uh, heat setting where we're sort of not quite an ice block dead, but where so there's a certain amount of warmth and kind of interest, but we never get too excitable or um, we never get too hot with the eros or, or whatever. Like we're not trying to find the find the acceptable five. That's the middle way kind of thing. Um, that's less how I would look at all this, that more that there's a range of being um, that's being opened up. And, and through that whole range, um, all kinds of beauty and nourishment and necessities are, are being, uh, you know, we, we are meeting with them, we are being fed them. So there's a range of being, um, of excited, excitability, if you like, arousal, being on fire, being on pa- impassioned, and a range of stillness and coolness and spaciousness, and all that opens up a, a, a big range. Yeah, and something about that that I, I would regard as, as the, the vision of, of uh, you know, what practices can possibly open up for us. So in general, you know, if there's eros, if there's certainly if there's a lot of eros, and you know, just to say again, some people I think are just born. It's their natural character, if you like, to natural, um, uh, you know, way they are. They are born with a lot of eros and a lot of psyche, if you like. They just have a lot of eros and a lot of soul. A lot comes through them, and. And it needs certain factors or certain qualities to allow it to be fertile and helpful um, and soul-making because there, there isn't, you know, it doesn't get short-circuited or implode or explode or fall over this way or that or whatever. So part of this is, is, is balance and strength of the chitta, strength of the chitta. 
So all, all these factors that we've been talking about, and we could add a few more, you know, because I would add um, 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 solidity and firmness. So the um, ability of the mind or the attention to stay steady with something. Okay, and I mentioned that um, several times, but, but that actually is important. Um, if I'm investigating Eros, if I'm working with an image, um, if it's quite subtle and complex, what's going on, yeah, the ability to keep the attention steady with that um, is important. Um, and and the general mindfulness, in other words, the general um, awareness, the ability to notice, to observe, um, and, and that, that might be a close, detailed, intimate um, noticing, but an ability to 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 notice and observe that even if it is close and detailed and intimate is not entangled. So that kind of what we would call mindfulness, that's important. Um, and also, I would add inquiry, like uh, the the factor of inquiry and investigation is also really important. So the the questioning, to to bring questions to bear in the moment on my experience, all kinds of questions and at all different levels, and the specificity and subtlety of the questioning and the specificity of the intention that needs to be involved at times in 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 inquiry. So those those three things like the uh, the firmness of mind in terms of the steadiness of the attention, the capacity to observe and notice what we call mindfulness, and the capacity to inquire the actual factor of investigation. Um, th- these are all part of what's uh, necessary to this whole investigation. And you know, I'm aware that in the past, recently at least, I've I've um, kind of. Um, said things which really kind of lean away from or, or de-emphasize mindfulness and equanimity, etc. But, um, so I seem to be contradicting myself. I am, in, in a way, contradicting myself. I'm not, I'm not really, it's, it's to do with context, you know. So if I said that in the past, it was really, um, for a start, in, in the context of um, sometimes what happens is there's a shrinking of the path, a shrinking of what practice means to people, a shrinking of what awakening means to people, and it gets shrunken to just mindfulness or just a vision of equanimity and really just wanting to open that up and partly in opening up kind of de-emphasizing the mindfulness or critiquing it even. But also just to say, you know, for myself, it's like I've spent years... I mean, um, training in in mindfulness and um, developing that extensively, intensively, um, developing mindfulness and equanimity to really, you know, high or or or, or, or deep uh, degree of of development, uh, and you know, maybe in in my case too, I don't know if one can say this, but um, I think certain people have a more natural disposition to. Um, to, to equanimity, but also to mindfulness, in fact. Um, and I, I would say that, that that's part of my natural disposition, uh, perhaps. So that sometimes it's, it's you know, all, all me saying that is in the context both of that perhaps natural disposition, but also in the context of the general um, scope of, of teachings or how people are thinking about what practice is right now. Um, Uh, so it's it's um, you know it, given all that, it, it, or given my actually just the personal things states a bit more about that. Given given that I I spent a lot of 
time and effort and years developing that and, and perhaps there's a natural disposition towards mindfulness and community. It m- may be easier for me or to, to kind of just say let go of that or develop something that seems to be its um, opposite or let go of the emphasis on so much mindfulness and equanimity all the time. But it, it, it it's tricky, you know, so... Um, I want to say I apologize, but actually I, I don't. Um, <laughs> I just want to say um, that it's it's tricky. Sometimes things need to get stirred up a bit. The question is, what do you need? Can that be an inquiry? And the question is also, what leads to what? What kind of concepts, what kind of emphases, what kind of explorations, what kind of fantasies lead to what, um, generally speaking? What am I assuming, what are you assuming true just because um, a teacher or lots of teachers seem to be saying the same thing or seem to be saying it? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of questioning involved uh, or necessary for all this. Yeah, if I am contradicting myself, which I admit that I am um, in a way, it's really maybe a way of thinking about it is really... Um, in the very contradictions, of which there are many in, in what I'm saying, it's really presenting both sides. So there's this and there's that. There's this and the opposite is somehow true as well. Um, so it's really a matter of um, actually balance, again, that the, 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 the contradiction itself is reflecting a kind of a, a meta level of balance that I'm trying to communicate in relation to all this. The responses of, of balance and wisdom to all this are uh, are complex questions. You know, there's a lot, there's complexity to to them. I'll say one more thing, um, or one more possibility for to develop some of these qualities. Um, kind of psychological balance, if you like, um, is implicitly uh, or explicitly conveyed in mandalas. Um, and it's developable in through meditating on a mandala. Some of you already do this. Some of you will be not familiar with this at all. Um, meditating on the mandala as a whole, or some elements in in uh, of the mandala in combination. Um, so I don't mean so much as a visual pattern, but I mean actually what the elements represent or the imaginal figures um, within certain mandalas. So for example, in one mandala, Akshobhya um, is, is um, a, a, a Buddha that represents uh, wisdom into emptiness uh, the, 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 or wisdom into um, the, the Vajra, of, um, which means diamond, so something that's really um, kind of indestructible. Um, something indestructible, some indestructible element of being, um, which which is related to emptiness. Um, and meditating on Akshobhya, if you like, and what that means as an imaginal figure, as an icon, you can one can balance that with um, another Buddha in the same mandala, for instance, Amitabha, who might be regarded, um, some some ways of seeing it, might be regarded as the Buddha of the imaginal. So right there you have this balance of there's the imaginal, but there's the knowing of the emptiness, and just putting those two in in relationship to each other, 
as images, but images that are pregnant with idea as well, and putting them in some kind of um, uh, counterpoint or, or and, and balance, if you like. There's the imaginal, and there's also the knowing of the emptiness. There's the form of the imaginal, and there's the uh, lack of form in, in the emptiness. There's the imaginal with the eros implicit in it, and there's the coolness of, of the knowing of emptiness and knowing of image as image. So sometimes putting those two um, and meditating them and perhaps placing them in your heart or along a certain axis, um, if these images are alive um, for you or can become alive, can be really powerful as a way of developing sort of balance generally in relation to all this. Um, or it could be... Um, putting uh, uh, those two or one of them um, in, in counterpoint, in balance, in relationship with, in opposition to, in co-constellation with, um, for example, another Buddha of the same mandala, Ratnasambhava, who might represent the emotions, the actual um, feelings of compassion or, or metta or, or whatever, or we might say more generally the emotional life, and again putting them in, in, in relationship and actually having them as iconic figures and letting the imaginal work, um, imbued with a little bit of co- concept, as, as it always is anyway, imaginal work, actually let that do its work on you by bringing the energy body and the whole consciousness into that, or bringing that into the whole consciousness and the energy body either way. Or uh, a fourth Buddha of that um, of that mandala, uh, Amoga Siddhi, is, is the Buddha related to action in the world. So um, you, you can see how, how these things just psychologically, can I balance the imaginal with the emptiness? Can I balance the um, emotions with the action or the emotions with the emptiness or the action with the emptiness and so so in, in, in activism and in engagement how, how many people uh, have, have come to me with that kind of question about you know burnout, about over involvement, being over passionate or it needs to be balanced more etc so this is one way of actually playing with all this um, but again what would it be to balance Akshobhya the emptiness, the Buddha of emptiness the the Vajra being the, the diamond quality indestructible quality of the transcendent for example and balance that with the Buddha of of action of engagement Amoga Siddhi um, we can play with these uh, figures, these icons these images in 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 meditation place them in relationship, in counterpoint in, 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 in balance etc and it, it will bring balance and it's possible with other um, imaginal figures as well, even erotic imaginal figures, see, play, see what's possible one thing I would say about all this in, in relation to that mandala and the emptiness thing is um, emptiness or the realization of emptiness here is is really uh, at whatever depth or whatever fullness you understand it at present or that is evoked by that I- image or concept. And so I know I put a lot of stress on saying emptiness means more than this and it's more than that experience and it's more than this and it's and this is what we really mean by emptiness. But um, at the same time, in this kind of meditation, you know, you might have a sense, some intuitive sense or even a direct experience of, let's say, um, the unfabricated or 
the big mind, big awareness, cosmic consciousness, or emptiness as ground of being. These are all things where um, you may have heard me or, or say that uh, this isn't emptiness in the way that we mean it. There's more to understand. There's a deeper emptiness, etc. Um, but still, they can be really valuable. So emptiness at whatever level and depth of fullness you understand it can be really valuable to bring that in the med- meditation. So it's it's alive and it's personal and it's relevant to you right now. You don't have to wait until necessarily... I mean, it's better if you have a deeper understanding, but... But um, or it will be better when you have a deeper understanding. But you can bring in any any level of what these images and ideas um, bring. Uh, whatever level is alive for you, um, that you can bring in. It will still have a lot of power here. Or you know um, that Akshobhya might be might be the Dharmakaya, the non-dual Buddha's uh, gnosis um, that includes all appearances. You know. Um, it, in a way, it's not important. What what we want is something that's relevant and that has a certain potency and power to bring into the meditation and let it do its work, let it do its alchemy. Because it is interesting to me as a teacher, you know, sometimes how um, vague concepts um, uh, or or a certain level of understanding or and and images can open experiences that are um, bring deeper understandings or open understandings that are deeper than a person knew that they even had. It's amazing. Um, knew that they were even conscious of, if you like, until until they played with it in a certain way or until they entered it a, a certain way. You think, what's going on here? Is it magic? Is it um, a kind of invocation? Is it just intuitive wisdom that something in us knows emptiness, for example, at this deep level, knows the the co-constellation and the balance and the necessity of these things, and where what we're really doing through the mandala is contacting and allowing to emerge that level of deep intuitive wisdom? Is it the the power of the imaginal, the power of image and poetry? It's interesting that the alchemy here is not entirely linear or expected. So what I'm really saying is trust trust whatever level of understanding of emptiness you have if you're going to play with this kind of thing and um and 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 trust the imaginal to do a certain a certain work here that's again it's got a certain autonomy to it it's beyond what we might have imagined uh in in the narrow sense, what we might have expected or thought beforehand. Okay, so we've, we've just in this talk, um, we've talked a lot about strength, balance, space, vessel, mostly as a kind of sort of collateral, as how we develop um, uh, these sort of um, qualities in our life that can then um, shape and inform and, and, and give us balance generally which will affect our relationship with Eros when it arises and all that. Um, in the next part uh, of the talk we want to talk about what does balance mean actually as you're doing imaginal practice as the Eros is alive with this beloved other, with this erotic object what does mastery of and balance and responsive mean in the moment there in the actual practice
So this this talk was mostly on the sort of what's around that practice uh, as the development of collateral, and and next one's actually in the practice. Um, and I'll just say it one more time. You know, sometimes for some people, there comes a time to question even the whole ideal of balance and equanimity, or or uh, question one's clinging to the opposite of being, you know, passionate and up and down and this or that. I'm like this or or whatever. So I'm I'm really talking, interested in developing that. Um, Developing the skills and the art of of, of balance and equanimity, uh, etc., with respect to eros, um, and that also there's there's a place for just questioning this. It's an ideal. Uh, balance is an ideal. I'll say a little bit more about it, but um, in the next talk. But but there's sometimes the place for just questioning this whole ideal. Where did it come from, and do I have to buy into it? And what does it look like? Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.